Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Nicholas McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. While well, we'll be joined over the phone by Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. First, we'll be discussing the launch of the first ever blockchain-based payment system for retail customers that was launched recently by Banco Santander. And speaking to us about that will be Anna Botin, head of the Spanish bank. Secondly, we'll be looking at how Goldman Sachs and the other big US banks have done in their first quarter earnings. And finally, we'll hear about how the debate over the future of Deutsche Bank's struggling investment bank is shaping up a week after the German lender replaced its chief executive. Starting with Santander, the Spanish bank announced it was launching a new blockchain-based payment service, and my colleague Patrick Jenkins talked to Anna Botin, the executive chairman, about why the bank launched it and what it means. So, Anna, thanks very much for joining us. You've just launched your new OnePayFX service, which is, I think, the first blockchain-based money transfer service. For retail. Um, yeah. For retail. For individuals. It's an interesting innovation. Obviously, the technology is innovative. Why is it so great for customers? What does it give people that they don't have now through traditional banks? Yes, one pay effects gives you is if you're a Santander UK, Santander Spain, Brazil and Poland, and we're going to be adding new countries soon, is that you're going to be able to make same day or next day. In the case of UK with Spain or Euro, it's actually same day payments from your individual account in the case of San UK customers, to any euro account in the continent. And you will know in that same instant what the amount you're going to receive in euros is. In the case of San UK, you're going to have zero commission on that. And you're, of course, going to have the security that Santander offers to all its customers. So that differs from current arrangements that most banks would offer in that it's transparent what you're going to be able to get for your money in foreign exchange rates. Yes. As you say, zero commission. And also it happens straight away rather than having to wait two or three days. Yes. In, in some cases, like overseas, uh, right now might be next day, but UK versus the continent is the same day. It takes basically a few hours, I understand, as of now. By the way, by the summer, we're working so that this is instant. And because it's blockchain-based, you know exactly the amount of euros you get on the other side, which is super important. As of today, it's several days, even for some of the fintech companies that are offering this, um, it takes several days. But in our case, the same day. And you've collaborated with Ripple to provide the blockchain kind of rails, if you like, for this service. What are the limitations of that? Because one of the drawbacks of blockchain as it's currently been developed is that it's capacity limited, isn't it? So how much of a drawback is that for you? So for foreign exchange payments, given the volumes we have, that is not a limitation. So actually, with this new initiative that is already in place, we are actually covering 50% of all the FX payments that the Santander Group does annually. 
And it works really well because the rails that we're using, which, as you say, we've collaborated with Ripple, we've been testing those for two years, actually with our own employees, and it works, it's safe, it's fully compliant, and obviously we've made sure we comply with all local regulations, so you're in safe hands. Now, currently, this service is only going to be available to Santander customers in one of the countries that you mentioned, but you're considering maybe spinning it out as something broader-based, as a separate app for all comers? Absolutely, yes. But let me just make clear that in the case of San UK customers, you can actually transfer euros to any other bank in Europe. So it depends on the countries, but in the case of San UK we can actually do that with Europe. And we're working to incorporate other countries like Portugal and others very soon. We're working to make it accessible also to small companies. As of today, it's only individuals. And we're working, as you say, to make this also at some point, I don't have a timing for that, a separate app. So it's open market payments. And so we're very excited about the potential. So you go head to head with the likes of fintech startups like TransferWise and so on. Absolutely. I think Santander offers more and better as of today than many of these other companies. Very good. Anna Bottin, thanks very much. Thanks, Patrick. So, Nick, you were also at the interview with Anna. Why do you think Santander is doing this? Does it mean that banks are essentially cannibalising themselves and accepting lower margins on services that they offer to their customers in order to respond to competition from fintechs? I think under the previous system, a standard electronic overseas transfer of Santander could cost you up to £25 per deal if you're a Santander UK customer sending it overseas. So with the new system, you cut out some of the intermediaries, presumably that helps them to lower the cost somewhat, which allows them to charge you slightly less. In this case, yeah. for the UK customers not have any fees, but it is also inevitably, it's a recognition that competition is increasing. There's a report from Citigroup a couple of weeks ago that estimated that European banks could be losing sort of a third of their revenues from payments over the next couple of years. And Anna pretty much acknowledged this herself, where she said one of the reasons she was personally so keen on developing this was that she'd seen her own son, who's obviously a Santander customer, using one of these new fintech rivals to send money back, I think, between America and Spain. And so, yes, there's a sort of sense that even if it is at slightly low margins, they'd rather be keeping that business internally. So it's good for customers. You've got the banks being forced to respond to lower cost and better service being provided by these upstart fintech companies. Not necessarily so good for the fintechs themselves that the banks are looking to squeeze them out of the market potentially and not so great for the banks themselves offering, in this case, for UK customers of Santander, commission-free cross-border payments where they previously would charge quite nice juicy commissions that make lots of money on. Yeah, there's a slight aspect of that, although from Santander's point of view, there's also the hope that the benefit of squeezing out those competitors will outweigh that. And Anna did talk about, for now, it's just for Santander customers in a couple of countries, but they are talking slightly longer term, maybe rolling out so that even customers of other banks could use the same service, which I think that would be the ideal endpoint for, for, and then, for them. And then they would hope to pick up more business and win more clients that way. Great. Nick, thanks very much. And now moving over to the US banks, and in particular Goldman Sachs, which is the latest among them to report quarterly results. I'm joined by Ben McClanahan in the US to discuss them. So Ben, let's start off by hearing how Goldman has done in the first quarter. 
Well, it looks pretty good from where I'm sitting. Uh, the word record crops up a few times in the press release, which is always good from a bank's point of view. I think the highlight striking people that I've spoken to already is the FIC. That's the Fixed Income Currency and Commodities Trading Revenues. Uh, 2.1 billion, uh, beginning with two, is always better than one, which was the case throughout last year. So 2.1 billion is 23% higher than a year ago. Uh, that's pretty good stuff. Uh, revenues from stock trading also up strongly 38% to 2.3 billion. In both cases, that's a three-year high. Now, Goldman's bar was very low. It started the year terribly last year. It was the worst on Wall Street. It was wrong-footed, apparently, by the Trump bump. But put all this together, uh, along with other strong performances from investment banking, from investment management and investing and lending, and you get the annualized ROE, the return on equity of 15.4%, which is the highest in over five years. I've just seen an analyst use the words uh, brilliant, simply brilliant. I think that's perhaps overstating it, given that very low bar. But certainly, it's a good way to get off the year. Okay, Goldman has run a disappointing set of results the last few quarters. Do these numbers in the first quarter indicate the Wall Street Bank is turning the corner? Yeah, this is the key question. Uh, We all heard uh, Goldman at length last year agonising over the future of its FIC division in particular. It sacked a lot of people. It promoted an investment banker, David Solomon, uh, rather than a trader, Harvey Schwartz, to the job of CEO in waiting. That's replacing Lloyd Blankfein when he decides to step down. It also tried to reshuffle the client mix, relying less on these flighty hedge funds and a bit more on steady as she goes, people like PIMCO. And so on. Also tried to build up the flow business within FIC. That's asking every investment banker on their rounds to drop by the CFO's office or the treasurer's office to sell them something on the way out the door. But Blankfein, you can tell from his remarks this morning, he's saying we are well positioned to serve our clients as the global economy continues to show strength and central banks unwind certain aspects of policy stimulus. He's quite excited about what he sees out there. So I think it's too early to say that they've turned the corner, but it's an encouraging start. And how does Goldman compare with the other US banks that have reported so far? Well, the tone of the earnings season has been mostly positive so far. I think Wells Fargo apart, that's a bank with a lot of problems still. But JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup, uh, Bank of America, the trading performance there was pretty mixed. Equities were strong, but bonds were pretty indifferent. And investment banking was a little bit patchy too. But overall, these universal banks, they had pretty good performances from the uh, retail divisions with low delinquencies, rising net interest margins, and uh, solid growth in in products like credit cards and, and car loans. In recent days, the shares of all have come off a bit, but I think it's the case of sell the fact. Okay. And what are the particular themes that stand out for you in this latest set of quarterly results from the US banks? Have they all had a big boost from Donald Trump's tax cuts, for instance? Yep. Tax cuts is the big one. Uh, The big four retail banks, that's JP, Citi, Wells and VA. We had combined first quarter EPS, which was the highest since 2007. So, yeah, this is an obvious function of that huge cut in the headline corporate tax rate. Goldman this morning said its effective rate in the first quarter was 17.2%. That's down from a 61% rate last year. That's after those big charges for the one-off deemed repatriation of profits held overseas and these revaluations of tax credits, which are always worth less when, when the tax rate drops. But the big theme, I suppose, for Goldman is the sustainability of that rebound in FIC. That's what people will be asking about on the earnings call. Because all these structural forces Goldman's been complaining about, this uh, shift to tougher regulation, electronic platforms, the steady rise of passive vehicles, they're all still here. So, yeah, it's been a nice start, but is it sustainable? That's the big question. Thanks, Ben. 
And now to our next and final item on Deutsche Bank. A week on from the replacement of John Cryan as chief executive of the bank, the European Central Bank has waded into the story by asking Germany's biggest bank to calculate the cost of winding down the trading assets of its investment bank, the first time the Eurozone regulator has done so. Laura, what should we read into this? I think the first thing I'd say about this is it's a case of very unfortunate timing for Deutsche because the news only came to light over the weekend when people are, as you say, asking a lot of questions about the future of the investment bank now that there's a new CEO in the chair who's come from the retail banking side. So it comes at a time for Deutsche where you could easily look at it and say, oh, well, the ECB is asking them how much it would cost to get rid of a big chunk of the investment bank and this heaps on further pressure. However, if you stand back from it a bit, we understand from talking to Deutsche, the ECB request was made several months ago three months ago to be more exact about it. So they've been working on this since sometime in the middle of January. In terms of what the ECB are asking them to do, it's a market review exercise where you look at how much would it cost if you were to liquidate over time all of the trading assets in the investment bank. The ECB hasn't done this for other banks, but we understand that they do intend to do it for other banks. And it looks as if they picked Deutsche first because Deutsche is one of the biggest, if not the sole biggest investment bank who falls under the ECB's remit. And Deutsche has also gone through a similar exercise for part of its UK investment bank under the UK financial regulator. So Deutsche has experience doing this. Now, we have talked to the bank about this. The bank say that this exercise has no bearing on their own strategic plans for the investment bank. So they aren't denying that there are some strategic conversations going on about the investment bank. They're simply saying that this exercise doesn't actually feed into that in any way. So it sounds like it's more part of regulators around the world drawing up resolution plans, living wills for banks and asking banks to work on those. But there is, as you mentioned, with the appointment of Christian Seving as chief executive of Deutsche, a debate that is raging and has been raging for quite some time inside the bank about the, what to do with its investment bank and whether to cut it back more dramatically, which areas to cut back. This plays into that, I guess. There is regulatory pressure from higher capital requirements in some areas that is driving some of that debate. Where do you think this is heading? So there are still two schools of thought within Deutsche Bank. There are some people on the supervisory board who would definitely favour a broader pullback, particularly from the US operations. Then there are people who see a need to maintain a core and the core looks like a big part of the business that they currently have. Certainly, I think we'll see some changes. I mean, we saw the departure of the co-head of the investment bank who headed the corporate finance and the advisory side, Marcus, Marcus Schenk. Yeah. yeah, he was an ex-Goldman Sachs guy. He was only in there for quite a short time. He has now left. He went in with an ambition to build out a global investment banking powerhouse. And he basically wanted to keep Deutsche's investment banking, advisory, M&A, equity capital markets, debt capital markets totally global. It looks as if that agenda will have left the building with him. However, you still have the big trading business. Trading is where the assets are. The person who's heading that, Garth Ritchie, came up from the equity side. It now looks as if equities is actually where the biggest cuts are going to be because equities is where Deutsche is losing the most money, I would say, at this point. And it's also where Deutsche has the biggest structural issues. So if you look at the last couple of years, yes, fixed income has been bad for Deutsche, but it's been bad for everybody. So Deutsche probably isn't as behind the market in fixed income as it is for equities. So certainly talking to the bank there, you will see cuts. I guess the question now isn't if you will see cuts, it's about the magnitude of the cuts. And that's certainly still a very live question within Deutsche Bank's own boardroom. Lots of questions remain for Deutsche Bank. Laura, thank you very much. 
That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Laura, Nick, Patrick and Ben for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.